normally, I do this with visual aids, and I went down to get my board, and I just simply, the, the materials I have to write with are, are not good, they're, they're dried out, and so we're going to do it. But it would be better with visual aids, and therefore I will repeat several times and try to, and try to visualize it in your mind, but it definitely is better when you're dealing, if this material is new to you, now if it's not, it'll be easy for you to follow. If it is, it's more difficult to follow. But we're not going to really teach Christian evidences in one setting, you can't. And so what I want to do with each of you, all of you guys are, are young, I think that this is absolutely the most important subject that you can study. Uh, nothing else really matters if, if, if this is not valid right here. And we need more people who to study it and, and become familiar with the information itself. And so I just want to whet your appetite. I want to introduce you to something that, uh, that is out there, some materials, and hope that I can motivate you to do some reading and studying in this realm. Uh, to give you an idea of um, how important uh, this is, right now, these are just late statistics, uh, we can see the changes taking place in our own society so far as the moral values and, and uh, as, a, as a country we are going away from the Christian values in our school system, in our laws, and etc. But to give you an idea of the reason for this, among others, that at the turn of the century in the United States, conservative Protestants, uh, fundamentalists, uh, we would be in that category. Those of us who believe uh, that the Bible was written by people who were inspired by God and believe it is an accurate book, we made up 41% of the population. I'm not even including uh, those that would be in the liberal category that claim to be Christian and everything like that. I'm saying just the conservative Christian made up 41% of the population of the United States, and, and we actually probably were the strongest voice in the country when it came to the law system. For example, uh, in my lifetime, I'll be 50 in September, some states, even New York, it was against, it was the only reason that they acknowledged for divorce was uh, adultery. I mean, that's in my lifetime. That there were states that, in fact, uh, I grew up in a society where uh, divorce was unacceptable. You know, the, only, the acceptable grounds was adultery. Uh, even people in the world have been so influenced by the Bible that mistreatment or abandonment or something like that, but it was not a trivial thing. That was the influence <coughs> of the Bible. In Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the population uh, percentage-wise of conservative Christians, about 34%. In other words, conservative Christians made up about 34% of the population. Again, a tremendous voice then. In Europe, it was about 15% at the turn of the century. In other words, conservative Christians made up about 15% of the population. Now, in the United States, conservative Christians would make up only about 31% of the population. In other words, we've dropped from 41 to 31%, or a drop of 25%. So that although conservative Christians are converting more, and we may be more in number, as a percentage of the population, we now make up 31 instead of 41%. In Great Britain, Australia, New Zealand, the percentage of the population that conservative Christians make up has dropped from 34 to about 19%. That's a tremendous drop. Even though, there, even though there may be more in number, their percentage of the population has dropped from 34 to 19. In Europe, the percentage has dropped from 15 to 
In fact, whether you realize it or not, in Western Europe today, on any given Sunday, only 5% of the population would be in church in, in Western Europe on any given Sunday today. And that's where we, now, our ancestors, right. came from. The reason was for religious reasons. Right. Hmm. Now, Africa, here's an interesting thing. Christianity is growing in Africa. Uh, at the turn of the century, uh, conservative Christians would have made up about 1.2% of the population. Uh, now, they make up about 8% of the population. So while Christ conservative Christianity has been on the demise in the United States and the Western world as a percentage of the population, it, has, it is five times in Africa what it was at the turn of the century. India has increased. China and Russia are hard to draw a bead on because of the tight political system they've had. One thing we did find out, when the doors opened up a little bit in China, we were pleasantly surprised to find out that we have thousands of believers still in China and worshiping underground. We've got them in Russia. We've got them all behind the Iron Curtain. And so we were, you know, as a group, pleasantly surprised over that. Suffice it to say, though, that in the thinking, educated part of the world, it has been on the demise. It is so much on the demise that there are two prevalent theories among scholars, uh, and this is scholars in the world. Number one is that as man advances in science and his knowledge and understanding of how things work in, improve, that eventually religion will go out the door and it will exist no more. That it's, it's been a crutch to explain the unknown, and more and more we are scientifically explaining the unknown. And they point to the what is happening. The, the more educated the population, the less well Christianity is faring. Okay, number two, another theory is that, that although Christianity will remain and religion will remain, that it will lose its substance. In other words, they will hold on to their rituals, baptism, the Lord's Supper, etc. Uh, it will remain a group, uh, but it will be devoid of all power. In other words, that, uh, that uh, people will not literally believe the Bible is inspired of God and and baptism will be more like an initiation into a, the Lions Club or something of that nature. In other words, here's the group that has a good daycare program, uh, good programs for their youth. Uh, the ladies have some programs, and, and they're, they're nice, decent, moral people, and, and they have a philosophical system about life that is very intellectually uh, challenging and emotionally appealing, and it will be that type of organization, but it will not be the type of organization that that we have known it in the past. That's a theory, too, based on what is happening. Now, while all this is happening in our society, the interesting thing is that, that the majority of conservative Christians in the Church of Christ is a good example of doing absolutely nothing to, to deal with this. Most don't even know that anything's going on. Uh, Cookville's a good example. But Cookville is not the real world. We, the real world is five billion people, the vast majority of which are not believers in the inspiration of the Bible and are not believers in the deity of Jesus. That's the real world. Uh, Cookville, uh, as a place where you've got a conservative church on every block, just sits there by itself. Consequently, uh, Churches of Christ, for example, 75% of them come from a Church of Christ background. In other words, that uh, the message in Churches of Christ through the years has not been designed to take an infidel and make a believer out of him. The message of the Church of Christ has been to uh, show the Baptist or the Methodist or the Presbyterian where his system was wrong on a few points and our system is right. 
And so we have the good example is geomotor film strips. Uh, we, we show them and we say, hey, it's, it's immersion, not sprinkling. Uh, there was one church, uh, it, it, it was identified by the Lord's name. Uh, the organization is autonomous. Uh, they have to do the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. Uh, we assume that they believe the Bible is inspired of God. 99.9% uh, .9 of every sermon that I ever heard before I became a Christian was, was one based on the assumption that everybody in there already believed. Uh, so, so strong is that assumption that people who have honest doubts don't voice them for fear of why, the way they, they might be branded. But the real battle is over the integrity of the Bible. It's not over some of these little individual doctrines that we talk about and all. Now, first of all, let me ask you a question. And then we're going to look at a few things in the Bible and then look at some of this. Think for just a moment. Think of something of importance that you are willing to believe without evidence. Think of something of importance. I'm not talking about a trivial matter. Something of importance to you as a person that you are willing to believe without evidence. Nothing. The rest of you agree with Tim? That would be my, I can't think of anything of importance. We're forgetting about religion now, we're talking about anything else. I can't think of anything of real importance that I would believe without evidence. When I hire a teacher to, to teach the school where I'm principal, it doesn't matter what they tell me. It doesn't matter that I know them. I want to interview that person, but I want to see their transcript from school, and, and I don't want to see the, their copy. I want, I want to see the transcript that's sent out by the school, and I'm going to call some references. But I'm not going to hire anybody without having some evidence presented to me that, that they can do the job. And when I hire that person or have a part in hiring them, it's a decision of faith. It's a decision of faith. But that faith is based on evidence. If you were managing a business, I suggest to you that you wouldn't hire anybody without some evidence tangible to your mind that they could do the job. You don't buy a car without some evidence. Now, the evidence may not be valid. It may even be wrong. But I'm saying that you don't buy a car. You don't do anything of, of any importance. You don't just go to a man because he claims to be a doctor. That's right. Okay, uh, and uh, everybody understands in a, from the overall view what we're talking about when we say lower or textual criticism, and that at least without you know going into any detail of each point, you can understand how that you can uh, show that the New Testament was written in the first century and completed and published at a time when people were alive that were involved in the events, and that's the acid test of history. You can also show that it's been accurately transmitted through the years. And so now, as a matter of scholarship, I'm not saying this is theory, but as, as a matter of scholarship, a matter of fact, that you can demonstrate and show that it was written in the first century, it's been accurately transmitted through the years. In fact, I've just ordered a book that in the last group I ordered, uh, written by a fellow by the name of Robinson, published in 1976. He's a liberal scholar, and his contention is that every book in the New Testament was completed before the destruction of Jerusalem in, in 70 AD. In fact, uh, something, I don't want to get into this and get off the subject, but traditionally uh, you have seen the works of John, such as Revelation and all, uh, with a date of about 98, and John, of course, the only works that they dated 
beyond 70 AD. But the latest scholarship is changing that, and you're going to find more and more works that put John in his writings before 70 AD. In fact, in a, an article in Times Magazine a few years back, I've got the article downstairs, uh, their statement was that today the majority of scholars would place the writings of John, including Revelation, before 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem. So that this is material that is there, and you can demonstrate it and show it, and remember that acid test of history that's, that's all important. Okay, now, remember also that with the Bible itself, don't think of the New Testament as one book. Uh, it's, it's not one book. It's the four Gospels and all of these letters and all of these documents. There is no church in the first century that you can find that had all 27 of those letters. Uh, that they wrote these letters, they were copied, they circulated. Uh, some of the smaller letters, some of them that were written to uh, areas away from the population and all, it took them years to get into the hands. In other words, it took uh, the churches of that time years before they got hold of all of these various documents. You can make a very good argument uh, showing that uh, there probably, in fact, when it comes to 11 of the Gospels, you can dogmatically say that there was no one of them that got to read the finished product. And I doubt very seriously that John read the finished product. But I, and personally, I don't believe there was a single apostle that got to read the finished product of all 27 documents. Most of them definitely did not. Now, what that means is, if they write these as individual documents, and it's published at that time, and it's, uh, it meets the acid test of history, if you can take those documents and compare them and show how they concur and complement one another, then you wind up with an absolutely tremendous case for the truthfulness of the contents themselves. And that's why, the, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's no accident that you have four books there. I mean, God could have given you one. It's no accident that you've had four. The first harmony of the Gospels was written about 150 to 160 A.D., where a person took and blended the materials together, showing how they harmonize and, and complement one another. Now, this is what we call then lore or textual criticism. We can do an outstanding job in that area. Higher criticism. The, the higher critic is concerned with taking this document and putting it to the test uh, in the same way that, uh, let's say that, uh, that uh, Ron and Teresa and Chuck and, and Tim, all, each of you, have written a, a document about something that you say that you, you saw, okay? So the first step in my looking at that is, is to prove that, uh, that you actually wrote that document uh, and that it has been made known at a time when people are alive who were involved in the events. You know, I've got to be able to do that. That doesn't prove you're telling the truth. You see, it just proves that that's what you believe is the truth. All right, I can learn a whole lot by comparing your documents one with the other. In fact, I can learn a tremendous amount about the truthfulness of your accounts by comparing your documents uh, one, one with another. All right, now, higher criticism would be after I've got all your documents and you've each written a letter about this particular event, that now I'm going to go to other sources outside of you and see how much information that I can get that deals with this and whether it contradicts or correlates uh, with what you actually have. Okay, when we come to the uh, New Testament, uh, uh, an example 
uh, what the higher critic uh, material that he would give us and some things we'd learn, learn from him. Uh, Cornelius Tacitus, the top Roman historian, uh, going back to the first century, writes about Jesus. He writes that Jesus was executed during, by Pontius Pilate uh, under the particular Caesar that was in control at that time. And that's in the, the writings of Cornelius Tacitus. Uh, Tacitus writes about Nero's persecution of, of Christians and Christians going to their death in various hideous ways uh, under Nero. Even though uh, he did not like Christians, Tacitus, he still thought it was very cruel what Nero was doing to Christians. Uh, Josephus uh, writes, uh, among other things, about John the Baptist. Uh, Josephus speaks of John the Baptist as a righteous man, a preacher. Uh, you have the death of John the Baptist by Herod in the writings of Josephus, and he's much more wordy with the information than what we have uh, in, in, all, in the Bible and in all the substantial points. We have a correlation there. In Acts, the 12th chapter, there's an event where Herod is addressing the people, and the people are saying, hey, he's a god. You know, and they are really acclaiming him. And the Bible says an angel of the Lord smote him and he died a very violent death. Josephus records the same event. And Josephus is not a Christian. He's a Jewish historian working for Rome. And Josephus records how the Herod is addressing the people. He describes in detail how he was decked out, much more detail than what you have in the Bible. And he describes how he became violently ill and died a horrible death. Uh, in the Bible, you read of a darkness came up, coming over the land between 12 noon and 3 o'clock when Jesus was being crucified. Uh, going back to another work we, from a fellow by the name of Julius Afghanis, we have the record of a debate taking place between a Christian scholar and a pagan. And the Christian scholar is pointing out the darkness that came over the earth in those three hours. The pagan scholar is arguing that it was a time of the eclipse of the sun. And the, and the Christian scholars say, no, it's the time of the full moon. That's when they had the, the Paschal sacrifice and all. The point being, here is a pagan debating with a Christian. And there, he's not saying that, hey, that's a lot of nonsense that you've got in your Gospels about darkness. He is actually trying to give an explanation of the darkness uh, in the process. And in the process becomes a witness to you uh, correlating with the statements you have in the Bible. Uh, when you go back to the Jewish writings, uh, such as you've got the, their writings such as the Mishnah, the Gemara, uh, the writings that, that they have about those events, the Jews in their writings mention Christ, that uh, a lot of the Jews believed he was the Messiah. Uh, they tell why they reject him. They make the claim that he did works of sorcery among them and, and deceived them and they thought it was miracles. But what are they saying? And there's what is the Jews saying in that source? They're saying that Jesus did things that the other Jews believed were miracles. And then they're giving you their interpretation and saying it was works of sorcery. But they're not saying that hey he didn't do anything and that's crazy. They're acknowledging that he did these things that others believed were miracles and as a result converting. Uh, in the Jewish writings they mention some of the apostles and, and mention the fact that they are converting and spreading this information uh, through the working of these healings and all. And again, they may attribute it to sorcery or to other sources, 
but they acknowledge that something is taking place and people are being converted in the process. Uh, Pontius Pilate, uh, we've actually got a coin with the name Pontius Pilate and his figure and all uh, on the coin itself. The uh, events that come through, when you talk about uh, the starting of the gospel, the church and in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, uh, nobody will historically deny this. In other words, they may deny, they may think that these people were deceived, that Jesus really wasn't raised, but the fact that the gospel was preached and thousands were converted is a historical fact. Well, then you've got to answer the question. Keep in mind what is happening here. Once you've acknowledged that event, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. And in the very city where he was crucified, thousands of people are converted seven weeks later. Well, so somebody's going to have to deal with that. Because these thousands of people that are converted are Jews who have already rejected him as the Messiah. In other words, what that's saying to your mind, there was extremely strong evidence given to them of his resurrection that they bought into. Not only that, the tomb was right there. Everybody could check the tomb. Did you know in all the New Testament there's never an argument about the empty tomb? Because everybody acknowledged it was empty. There was never an argument about his death. There was never an argument about the burial. There was never an argument about the empty tomb. Those were all facts accepted by both Rome and Jews. The entire argument was how did that grave become empty? And thousands of people were being converted, persuaded that he'd raised from the dead, and the first of those thousands were Jews, okay? You and I can look and at the lives of the apostles, and history will bear record that they did go into all these places, they did establish churches, they did suffer hardship, they did go to jail, they did go to their death. In other words, they were very sincere, conscientious, dedicated, sacrificial people. They did believe. No scholar will question that. So then the only possible thing, if you're going to be an unbeliever, the only argument that you can have is they were deceived. And so you're going to have to come up with something. But then you've got problems, like we mentioned earlier, because the statements they make are so concrete that they're either lying or telling the truth. I mean, if somebody says he's seen a vision of Jesus, maybe he was deceived. If they say, hey, I see him. I saw him at 12 o'clock one night. Maybe he was deceived. But when somebody tells you that I've handled him and I've, and I've seen him and I've talked with him and I've eaten fish with him and I've put my hands where they put the spear and rolled the nails, etc., those statements are too concrete. You know, they're either, they're either lying or they're, they're telling the truth. Um, History, again, looking at the, the Bible as a whole, in the Old Testament, good, this is a good example. You read in, I've got this book downstairs uh, in a secular source, you read in Kings about uh, Sennacherib of the Assyrian army, taking his Assyrian army and encompassing Jerusalem when Hezekiah was king and Isaiah is a prophet. And you read in the Bible how that Isaiah made the promise to Hezekiah that he would never set foot in Jerusalem, and then you read Hezekiah being a faithful man and praying to God. And it said an angel of the Lord destroyed 185,000 of his army. And he went home a beaten man and was killed in his own temple, worshiping his pagan god. Well, see, the Assyrians had historians also. And the Assyrians in their historical record record this event. And we've actually got the direct statement of Sennacherib. And this is, you can get this in any number of archaeology books. I've got it in several different sources. And his comment, his own comment was, I've got Hezekiah hemmed up like a bird in a cage. He was literally making fun of him. 
Well, then his army was destroyed, and he went home a beaten man, and that's by the Assyrian record. Okay, in the I've got a, a book that I, uh, I took this course at uh, University of Maryland while I was in the Marine Corps in Okinawa, uh, philosophy of religion. And what the, the author is doing is studying religions all over the world, and he's dealing with Judaism and why they believe that these were prophets of God. And he acknowledges that in the secular sources that we have this parallel account. And then he says that, that Isaiah says such and such, but we have, uh, and there is the evidence from the other side was that a plague hit the army. Well, see, that what the Assyrians record is that a plague hit their army. Well, that's interesting, that it hit it at just exactly the right time. But then he's got a little astronaut, and down at the bottom of the page, he says, we have evidence to believe that a bribe was, was given them. Well, see, first of all, here is an unbelieving historian that's telling you, yes, that army was encompassed around Jerusalem. Yes, they did leave. And yes, their own historians say that a plague hit their army. Well, when, his, when you check out his evidence for a bribe having been given them, the, there is no evidence. His evidence is the fact that there were times when a nation would come against another nation and they would pay a ransom or so much money and they would lift the siege and move on. And that's happened, that's happened at various times. In here, the only evidence is what the Jewish writers say. We know what that is. That's in the Bible. And what the Assyrians say. And the Assyrians don't claim they were paid a bribe. They claim that a plague hit their army. But the point is, here is a secular source tied in and verifying the events itself. Paul, the Bible says 185,000 died in one night. Uh -huh. Is that right? Does the historian... I can't uh, remember whether it gives the exact number or not. Well, I don't mean that. Was it, was it a, would it be that great of a number? Did it just simply gives that his army uh -huh. you know, was destroyed by plague. And that, that's all it, all it gives on there. Alright, when you go through the Bible, the various kings, the various countries that you read about can be verified in secular history from the standpoint that they existed at that particular time. Anytime there's ever been an argument against it, it came from the standpoint of silence. In other words, that here is something that you've got in the Bible, but you couldn't find it out here. Of course, silence, just because it's not out here, doesn't mean that it's not there. But then, as time has gone on and the archaeological discoveries were made, whenever it was found, we've always found it in such a way that it correlated with what we had in the biblical account itself. Uh, back to the New Testament, an archaeologist by the name of William Ramsey, he's called the father of New Testament archaeology. He was a student in the Tubigen School in Europe, and he actually had been convinced of the theory that the Gospels, including Luke, had evolved over a period of time, and those stories had been embellished in, in various ways. And it was not written at the first century and published in that way. Well, Ramsey, in his archaeological and historical work, one of the things that he did was, was check out Luke in both Luke and the book of Acts. And, and in his works, he mentions that he actually entered into his study of archaeology prejudiced against the New Testament. But the end result was that he winds up making the statement that Luke was the most accurate historian that he'd ever studied from. That he just simply had not, never found Luke wrong on any particular point. His conclusion was, taking into consideration his accuracy about the politics, the geography, the language, uh, the customs, 
that there is no way that that material could have been written except by somebody that experienced it, was there, and lived at that time. To, to help you to appreciate that, how hard it is to deceive uh, scholars in, in areas, it would be like you, if you say you've never lived in New York City, and you decided that you was going to write a book about a family in New York City, and you were going to tell all kinds of things that happened and all, and you were going to try to publish it as if it were the truth. And you're going to have to deal, think of what you think about New York City. And you're going to have to write that in such a way that somebody from New York City uh, would read that and never know but that you came from New York City. Well, you know that, uh, that uh, when you look at that city, it has streets with certain names. It has things in certain locations. Though their language is uh, a little bit different. They have different idioms, certain things in their culture, uh, certain people in power positions, mayors, etc., and all. There's just no way that you could sit down and write something like that and deceive a scholar into making think that you are actually from New York. Or if, for example, that Ron moved into a community and, and he's decided he's going to tell everybody that he's from Memphis. And so everybody, you tell everybody you're from Memphis, and then you meet this guy that's from Memphis. And he begins to ask you questions and to talk with you. Well, if you talk much, uh, he's going to expose you. Uh, he'll find out very quickly uh, whether or not you're, you're from Memphis or not. In other words, I'm saying it is not an easy thing at all to write fiction and dis deceive scholars. Uh, you may deceive somebody that really does not know about it, but it is extremely difficult to write fiction and deceive scholars who are aware of the history and all. And I'm saying that the New Testament, the archaeologist and the historian, the geographer, all of them, can go back and look at that area and everything you find there correlates perfectly with what you have in the secular world. You've got the same language, you've got the same geography, you've got the same culture, the same pagan gods, the same customs, the Jews in the right place, the the right names on the people. In other words, that all of that in the entire New Testament is of such a vein that you just simply couldn't even have that, except that we're published, everything like that. We have never been able yet to, to grab anything where we can say that, hey, we can expose this as a historical lie, as far as the New Testament is concerned. We just simply haven't been able to do it. And so the higher critic then is looking at archaeology and history and any source at all that's available to him or anything from the culture, anything from the language that will help him to understand this and to also to find out any wrongs that are there if indeed there is some, some error that's there. And remember now, I'm not saying that you have to have that. I'm saying that's good material. But when you study with somebody, all right, then your big thing is that, yes, I can prove these documents were written and published as refutable testimony, and then, of course, you've got the history over here, but then you can do a tremendous amount when you just simply compare Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you can also take the writings of Paul and the writings of Peter and the writings of Jude, etc., and you begin to compare these various materials, and then you also begin to compare them with other materials in the Old Testament. And again, one thing about the Old Testament, prophecy is not prophecy unless you can prove the material was written in advance. And, and see, we, you, it's not valid to an unbeliever for you to say, so-and-so prophesied such-and-such. The question is, can you prove 
that so-and-so wrote it over here, and then can you prove that the event happened here? And if you can do that, then you've got a case of prophecy. And I'm not going into that tonight, but I'm just saying you can do that. That you can, what we did in a brief way with the New Testament, I'm saying it's, I'm not, it wasn't brief, but an overall view, you know, that uh, each part you could spend a lot of time studying. You can take each book of the New Testament, and you can do the same with the Old Testament, I'm saying. You can take Isaiah, Daniel, etc., and you can give your proof for this book having been written at a certain time. You can give your proof for it having been accurately transmitted, and then you can come to the higher critic and give your other sources that correlate with it, and you can literally prove that Isaiah was written over here, and you can prove that these events happened over here. And you can prove that Daniel was written over here, and you can prove that these events happened over there. And it's just simply a matter of the study that's, that's involved to do it, but you, but you can do all of that. Now, one other thing, and we'll end on this. Although people who have, who are a lot of people that are Christians do not call it evidences, they really do uh, have evidence. Uh, for example, you are made in the image of God, okay? If you are, if there is a God and you're made in his, you're made in his image, then obviously you would expect inner spiritual identification with any work that it's had its basis in God. One of the first evidences that everybody has experienced in the Bible is inner identification with that moral law. In other words, that, uh, that the fact, if you read in the Gospels that Jesus lied or he cheated, <clears throat> even if you lied or cheated yourself, you'd have problems with somebody claiming that he was some great man of God. And so you read that and you have an inner identification with Jesus. He may step all over your toes. And that's the interesting thing about him. He steps all over everybody's toes. But everybody that reads it is attracted and finds inner identification with that life and inner, inner identification with that teaching. The law, the law is inherently right. In other words, it's right not just because it's said to be right, but it's right because it's right. And it's inherently right. And so... You can look at those laws and you can look at society and you can see that to the degree that society deviates that there's problems. To the degree that they conform uh, that there's good things that happen. And so I'm saying that through the years, your parents and your grandparents, the evidence that they have had among others has been this inner identification with the book. An inner identification with Christ. An inner identification with that law. Okay? But <clears throat> that's not an evidence to the person out here that wasn't brought up that way. He doesn't have that emotional feeling, and he doesn't have any of that. And he will have to have that kind of thing. And this is when Jesus tells us that we're to be the light of the world, that as you live a light that he, being made in the image of God, can inwardly identify with, that becomes an evidence that, hey, this is different and better than any philosophy I've came in contact with. That's not the full evidence. That is one evidence that hopefully will lead the person to this material and, and that he'll begin to examine the material and wind up convinced of it. Another thing to keep in mind about evidence, give you an example. We're going to prove that this person uh, shot this individual over there. We've got a gun that has his fingerprints on it. Does that prove he shot him? It's his gun. Does that prove he shot him? Okay, let's forget about that. Forget about those two pieces of evidence. Here is one person, and he says, I saw him shooting. Does that prove he shot him? Would, would a jury convict him on that? 
Here's another person. Let's forget about this guy over here. He says, I saw him shooting. Would he convince the jury? Okay. You see what we've got? We've got fingerprints. We've got his gun. We've got two people that say they saw him shooting. But any one by themselves don't, don't prove anything. Okay. Here is somebody else that says that he told me yesterday he was going to shoot him today. What well, does that prove he shot him? No. Okay. Here's somebody else, and he says, I saw him walk into the apartment at 3.15. Somebody else says, well, I saw him come out at 3.30. And the man that went in and the doctor that checked him out said he was shot sometime between 3.15 and 3.30. Well, does any one of those three prove he shot him? It doesn't. Okay. But now let's put it all together. And here are two witnesses that say they saw him shooting. Here's another one says, I saw him walk in there at 3.15. I saw him walk out at 3.30. Here's another one says he was shot somewhere between 3.15 and 3.30. Here's, here's his gun. Here's his uh, fingerprints on the gun. And here's the guy that said he told me he was going to shoot him yesterday. And you're on the jury. What are you going to vote for? The guy's saying all the time he didn't do it. You're going to vote guilty. Okay, no one evidence... Even though you got true, would have convinced you, it was putting it all together. So I'm saying evidence, when your mind evaluates evidence, you need a plurality of sources. The more sources, the better. And so you, it's no accident you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's no accident that you've got 27 documents in the New Testament. It's no accident that the Old Testament was completed 400 years before the New Testament. It's no accident that God chose 40 men uh, to write uh, in three languages over a period of several thousand years this particular book here, that there are all kinds of very interesting features in it. And so what happens sometimes is that the unbeliever will go and he'll take uh, Ecclesiastes, let's just pull it out of the Bible. It says, prove to me that it's inspired by God. You can't. He pulls Song of Solomon out and he says, prove to me it's inspired by God. You can't. He pulls Proverbs out and he says, prove to me it's inspired by God. You can't. He pulls Genesis out. Prove to me it's inspired by God. You can't. He pulls Matthew out. Prove to me it's inspired by God. You can't. He pulls 1 Corinthians out. Prove to me it's inspired by God. You can't. And this is the way the unbeliever would attack the Bible. And it can sound very impressive if all you're going to deal with this. The strength, not only of this, it's not just this, anything you're talking about. Anything that you have not seen with your own eyes and you're going to have to evaluate, you need a, before you can know for sure, you may think now, but before you know for sure, you need a plurality of evidences. And so let's just, when we get all the evidence, then we can do those particular things. But you can't, you can't just grab individual statements or individual books and forget about everything else and then prove that's inspired. It may be, but you can't prove it. You need the various evidences that are there, and you need to be able to, to weave them together, but it can be done. Okay, let's go ahead and... Anybody want to make any comments before we knock this off for tonight? You said that we could prove that all the books in the New Testament were written in the first century. Does mm -hmm. that mean you can prove or prove? I know we might not be sure about Revelation, but can you prove they were all written in 470 AD? I believe personally that all... In other words, right now there are those still that would argue that Revelation was written in 98 AD. Okay, I believe personally that all was written before 70 AD, including Revelation. Uh, I believe that when people approach Revelation from a standpoint of pure scholarship, 
you wind up with before 70 AD. And when I said that like the article in Time magazine that was saying that the majority of scholars put it before 70 AD, see what happens. The, the way you interpret that, some points are going to be completely different if you bring it up to 98. The event that was being looked forward to before 70 AD, Jesus prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the temple, the downfall of the Jewish nation. That was the big judgment that he prophesied. And so if you put it over here in 98, then you don't even consider the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. You began to look for something out here and to try and find it. I believe one of the reasons there's been a, a literary merit of interpretations of revelations and, and so many things of that nature is because the, the dating itself has been wrong. But I believe personally that all was but, written before 70 AD. Okay, but you can, when you're saying in the first century, you mean before 70 AD as far as the rest of the books go too. Oh, you're right. See, there's no That's argument the that John is the only one that we've really had later. Okay. And now I'm saying that, uh, uh, for example, in the book there I had out, uh, it's in there somewhere, Wilson and New Light from Archaeology. Uh, let me read you a statement real quick on this if I can find it. Uh, page 167. Uh, okay. The new current thought since the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls is to place the material of John's Gospel as being before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay. Then he goes on with his evidence there and he's showing how that the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 have changed the, uh, the thinking there. And I won't go into the reasons or anything like that. All right, in the same vein as this, uh, Jay Adams, uh, in a book, The Time is at Hand, a Presbyterian who at one time believed premillennialism, uh, comes out and, and points out that that book, by all evidence, uh, is, is, was such a, of such a nature that it persuaded him that it was written before 70 AD, and that things that they have applied in the future, he believed applied to the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. Yeah, among churches of Christ, Probably the one that would be most noted would be Foy Wallace Jr. Uh, then in his commentary on Revelation, he had debated premillennialism for years with various groups, and in his commentary on Revelation, uh, he did a tremendous research work on the dating, and he made the statement in, that he changed his entire thinking and was convinced that it was written before 70 A.D. and that many of the events that we have put up in the future applied to you know at that time at you know at that period of time. Um, some other works on the material, uh, the uh, uh, Philip Schaff, History of the Christian Church, in his second edition, makes a statement that on two matters that he had changed since the first edition, and he said, one, the writings of John, that he had now been convinced that John's writings was before 70 AD, including Revelation. William Albright, considered the top biblical archaeologist of today, uh, makes the statement that he, had, he has changed in his thinking in, this light, in his lifetime and has been convinced it was before 78 days. I can give you a whole list of scholars who at one time accepted the 98 AD based on the information, but as a result of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, archaeological discoveries, more information about the language and things, uh, a closer look at the internal material itself, uh, have been convinced that it was before 70 AD. Personally, I believe that all of the New Testament was before 70 AD. Mr. Cook, um, I want to ask you two things. Um, could you tell me, I, I, I take by you saying premillennialism, what I take is that Revelation is applied to future 
events like before the thousand year kingdom or whatever you know associated with that kind of thinking but at any rate um is that kind of what you're talking about and then i wanted to ask about um i don't know if this really applies but why wasn't you talk about the letter to laodicea you know when you talk about these aren't all these things recorded in the book of so-and-so maybe in chronicles or something uh -huh. like that like why, yeah why aren't those in there i mean that may take too long to answer and if it does just no, I no that's a good away, question but, it's very good no. but i that and about the premillennialism. So you're saying, like, those prophecies in Revelation have already been fulfilled, mm -hmm. right? Is right. that kind of that's kind of what I get? Right. All right. On the letter, that's real good. On the layout of sins. Okay. Number one. Many scholars believe that what we call uh, the book of Ephesians was the letter that was written to the layout of sins. Uh, the word Ephesus is really not in the, the manuscript itself and it's the it's, it's something that is added and there's uh, you know that is uh, uh, they're in close proximity in the same area and all but a number of scholars and maybe the majority believe that uh, that letter he's talking about is the one that we call Ephesians uh, for it like you read about Paul writing in 2nd Corinthians and and when he mentions the previous letters as he's written you get the impression that he's really written three letters and not two but again uh, and I thought uh, when I studied that up there, Talbert taught the class that I, up at Cookville in the, when we was going through Second Corinthians. I thought he did a real good job with that. And of course, he had I'd already studied it and believed that myself. I believe that that what we call uh, that that is at least two letters in that in that particular thing. Also, uh, in some of the materials like the Book of Jasher, the Jews kept records. They had their inspired records and then they have their other records. And we don't have another, all the material itself. For example, that the canon, uh, what we have in that history was the, probably the, one of the biggest factors in putting it together and the way that we have it now was Ezra. And how much Ezra had deleted, you know, we can only guess. And, and the same with some of that other materials. When Moses wrote, uh, we sometimes represent Moses like, you know, the Holy Spirit just dictated, you know, or God told him every word. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He gave him those various laws and everything like that. Moses is writing from historical documents. And those documents have been passed down to him. And he's writing for tablets. And, and you can actually see a break in the different sources that's there. And so Moses is pulling these sources together to give you that history. Now, how much is deleted you know, you and I can only guess. He's the editor, and he pulls it all together, and he gives us the law, thing. but he definitely is writing from sources that had been carried down to him. Remember, Moses uh, was taught by his own mother about the true God while he was brought up in the house of Pharaoh, and he understood that the Hebrews uh, were the people of God. And remember that when God spoke to Moses uh, out of the burning bush, and he said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Obviously, Moses knew who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. And he knew about the promise that God had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so those materials were carried down. Moses serves as an editor and puts it together. You know, how much was deleted, we don't know. And the same with when Ezra put his material together. How much was deleted, we don't know. A good example in the New Testament, Luke said the, uh, that he gathered his material from talking with the other eyewitnesses and from reading other sources. And so he tells you in the first four verses that he's operating as a historian who's pulling this material together. All right? How much he, as, as the editor, Luke is really an editor and a historian. All right? Now, how much he had available to him 
that he did not put in there, you know, there again. We can only speculate. Well, he even makes that statement, uh, don't he, that many other signs and wonders Jesus John, did. John. John. But the same type of thing. John says that, that many other miracles did Jesus do that are not written in this book. So John operates as an editor. That many other things that happened. In other words, in the early church, how many of these other miracles were circulating orally? You know, we can only guess. This is what John chose to, to wrote, write down, you know. I think his question is, why do we not accept some of these? Is right. That right, that's kind of what I was, I was oh, trying no, to think back to my original question. So. You would if you had them. Well, I think, too, this, what we do have is what has been accepted all the way down that the Jews... Okay, let me show you on the acceptance. With the early church, the number one criteria for accepting something as part of the canon, the 27 books, the number one criteria was that the material either be written by an apostle or endorsed by an apostle. Okay, Matthew and John, of course, you've got two apostles in, involved. Mark, in the first century, Mark's gospel is called the Gospel of Peter, according to Mark. Uh, Mark, all evidence is, was converted by Peter. Uh, Peter taught him, and Mark was under Peter in the same way Timothy was Paul. Remember when Peter got out of jail in Acts 12, he went to the house of Mark's mother. And so that in, in the early church, that uh, uh, Mark, although he wrote the material, they recognized that it was the preaching of Peter. And they actually referred to it as the Gospel of Peter as written by Mark. Okay, Luke was accepted because he was a companion of the Apostle Paul. And, and, and he had the endorsement of Paul. But that's the reason that those four were accepted. Two by apostles, one who was credited with writing the preaching of an apostle and was endorsed by Peter, and the other one, the fact that he was a companion of the apostle Paul and had first-hand information to a lot of that that happened in the book of Acts, had talked and been with all the eyewitnesses and everything, and that's why they received that. Paul's letters were received an apostle. Uh, James was received as the work of, uh, James was referred to in the early church as James the Just, the brother of Jesus. And because he was the brother of Jesus, that work was received. It had the endorsement of, of the apostles. Jude also, all evidence is that this is another, one of the brothers of Jesus. And so that those letters were initially, unless that you could show that a letter was written by an apostle or had the endorsement of apostle, the early church fathers would not have accepted it. And there was a lot of other things circulating that was rejected. Now, the interesting thing is, a lot of this other material that's circulating, a certain percentage of it may very well be true. But the point is that how much is truth and how much has been embellished in various ways, you really, you know, that you, you couldn't know. And so it was accepted on, on that ground. Well, then as the years went on, like as they, uh, uh, argued and, and accepted the, the, uh, those 27 books, you looked at them from the standpoint first of their going back to the apostles themselves. But then they also went over them very carefully. Like, for example, in Isaiah 8 and verse 20, he made the statement, if, if they do not speak in keeping with the law and the prophets, there is no light in them. In other words, Isaiah was telling you to challenge the prophets of, of his day. He was telling people, he said, if they're saying anything that's contrary to Moses, there's no light in them. Well, in the same vein, uh, the, they, these scholars of those early centuries, another criteria was, uh, is all this information harmonious? Is it contradictory? Is anybody saying something that's different than what the other person is, is saying? They're different than what we've actually been taught. And see, these first people that are involved in, in this are people that actually heard the preaching of the apostles themselves. And so, 
Is it harmonious? Uh, does it fit in with the entire scheme of things? Was it written by an apostle? And, uh, and, and this was a big thing to them, written by an apostle. And see, they had, many of those people had actually seen the miracles performed by the apostles. And then, though, as we got past that generation, we went more, to us, we had to have more than just that it was uh, written by or endorsed by an apostle. We began to look at it from a standpoint of harmony, uh, from the standpoint of all these other matters, ways that we talked about in checking that material out. Now, the Old Testament, the 12 books the Catholics have, uh, that we call the Apocrypha books. Okay, and in short, you would point out that the number one, that Jesus endorsed the same Old Testament that we have. In other words, the Jewish Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles used is the same exact Old Testament that we have. Now, we've got them in 39 books. They had them in 22 books, but it's the same material. It's just the way it's arranged. But the first point, the, the reason that we don't accept those 12 books is that the Jewish Bible that Jesus and the apostles used did not contain those 12 books, and they never quote from those 12 books. All right? The second thing is, when you look at those 12 books, they have contradictions, they have absurdities, and there are not, there's no prophecy in its fulfillment. The marks of the information, of, of, in fact, when I read the Apocrypha, one of the greatest things it did for me is to help me to appreciate the others. Because, I mean, of some of the absurd statements and some of the contradictions that they, they contradict one another, they contradict statements in the Old and, and New Testament. There's no prophecy in its fulfillment. It was never endorsed by Jesus and the apostles. And when the uh, Jews translated the Bible, the Old Testament, from Hebrew to Greek and the Greek Septuagint, none of these apocryphal books were in it. But having said this, the apocrypha contains some good history between the Testaments. And going back in the early years of the church, those books were read but they were not read as inspired. For example, 1 Maccabees is an excellent historical source uh, for that. In, and I believe that uh, Christians would gain a better perspective of those years between the Old and New Testament if they read the Apocrypha. And so as long as they read it as secular sources, fine, you know, and, and it could be read. But those are the reasons it would not be accepted. On the other hand, getting to the books you have in the Old Testament, the fact that it would be written by a prophet by a prophet or handled by, an, a, pro, by a prophet would be a key ingredient. And That's, also you have people in the, the apostles and Jesus that quote from a large percentage of the script of the books right. in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus, the Law of Moses, the Psalms, and the Prophets, the three categories. You know, he accepted all three categories. And of course they quote from these various books and you can see the prophecies and their fulfillment. Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, no prophecy, no fulfillment, no miraculous. But it was a part of that body of material that was in the Greek Septuagint, and the Jews accepted it, and Jesus, it was, in other words, it was a part of the book that he had, and it was a part of the book the apostles had. And Ecclesiastes is a book that you can, in other words, you... You could still be a Christian, and, and it wouldn't affect your evidence if you didn't have it in there. But you can see where you learn a lot from Ecclesiastes. Now, where we sometimes misrepresent a book like Ecclesiastes, and we've done damage, we have sometimes taught this, like the way I was taught, that, it's, uh, that you know, the Holy Spirit just dictated this. And this is what uh, Solomon wrote. The Ecclesiastes is not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the sense that it's, a, that it's the will of God, that it's a part of the canon for us to read. What you have in Ecclesiastes 
is a man who has lived his life. And he's tried every ungodly thing under the sun. He's broke God's law in every way he possibly could. He's, he's sought uh, satisfaction in pleasure, in money, in sex, you name it. He's tried to find it. And his conclusion was it's all vanity. And then finally at the end of that book, his conclusion is that the whole of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, after God allowed Solomon to live this long life, gave him this tremendous intellect, and, so, and, and, and he's got all this wealth. And so here's a man with an outstanding intellect, with all kinds of wealth, a long life. He can do anything he wants to and he does. And after he does it, the conclusion is that it's all vanity. There is no satisfaction. There's no happiness. There's no fulfillment in life unless you've got a relationship with God and you're comfortable there. And so, you, so he hit on a truth. See, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Solomon hit, or the writer there concludes, and hits on a tremendous truth. And that truth is worth carrying down. Proverbs, not the Holy Spirit dictating every word. Proverbs is an older, mature man who is very well studied in the Law of Moses. He is very keenly observant in life. He's experienced many things. And here's his conclusion. God's law is inherently right. It's not right because God says so. It's right because it works. And so in Proverbs, you have statement after statement based on his observation and experience and his knowledge that, hey, this is the only way to live. It's the only way that works. And so constantly you have warnings about various things, and he has come to the conclusion that, hey, this law works. So what has he done? He's hit upon a tremendous truth, and therefore uh, God uses that, and it's been providentially brought down, and you have it in the canon itself. General truths, right? But General truths. In general. fact, that's important. There's a difference between... Absolute. Uh, uh, right. There is a difference. In other words, Proverbs make statements that are general truths that there would definitely be exceptions to, and they fully, they fully understood that. Like when it says, train up a child in the way it should go. When he gets old, he'll not depart from that. That is a general truth. You Sometimes practice that, but you definitely will have, have exceptions to the rule. And by the way, in the way uh, a... A Hebrew way of stating things was an overstatement, if that makes sense. I mean, and, and, to, and to state things as if they were a, an absolute truth when in reality they fully understood, you know, that there, there could be exceptions to that point. That was just part of the Hebrew way of writing. I'd love for you guys to stay on that. I was going to say, my second question can wait. I mean, that's kind of because I, I come from a... A Baptist background. In fact, I was just baptized this last year, and so okay. that's the kind of thing. That's kind of what I was asking. But that I can, I can wait okay. if I come back next time. Yeah, I tell you what, I'd love to study with you on that of uh, the premillennialism. Oh, premillennialism. Yeah, that's, basically, that's what, what is done there is that in you know is that there are statements that I believe without any reservation in my mind that are idioms and figurative that are taken in a literal way. And there's also, and, and in a way that there is, uh, in fact, I think that it's, uh, it's having a tremendous effect in, in many ways in, uh, in, in the world. The, the nation of Israel uh, would not even exist as we have it today except for the belief in the doctrine of premillennialism. And the fact, in, in our relationship to Israel and the Arabs is affected by what many in this country believe on, on that particular document. I can talk about, I can wait for that till maybe next week or sometime to come back, but that's really interesting to me, that kind of thing.
Uh, you mentioned a Baptist background. Jo you know, Josh McDowell is a, is a Baptist background, and he's uh, probably putting out some of the very finest works in the field of Christian kind of evidences right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's got some tremendous works out. Yeah. Um, anytime you all talk about that next week, if that's what you're talking about, could you take it? Yeah. We generally tape, uh, I forget to sometimes, but anytime Mark is not here, of course Mark even tapes when he's here, we do, and that was, uh, you know, he just, he brought this up, you know, and wanted to tape. Four top-notch, high-quality manuscripts in the New Testament. That's the Sinaite manuscript, manuscript found on Mount Sinai. The uh, Ypres manuscript, the Vatican manuscript owned by the Catholic Church, the Alexandrian manuscript uh, found in Alexandria in Egypt. Okay, and then there's others, but these are four that are high quality that contain the majority of the New Testament. Now, these manuscripts go back to about 250 AD. Okay, so through our manuscript material, they go back to about 250. A.D. and then come from that forward. In other words, we don't have manuscripts closer than 250 A.D. Now, a manuscript will be, man, the plural manuscripts will be what scholars use to translate because a manuscript is a direct word-by-word -word copying from Greek to Greek. All right, now a version is the translation of a manuscript into another language. Okay, now we have thousands of versions of the New Testament that go back to as early as 150 A.D. For example, the oldest version of the New Testament is the Cyrenaic version. And it goes back, written in Aramaic, goes back to about 150 A.D. Well, obviously, we said that the manuscripts went back to as early as 250 A.D., but obviously you can't have a version without having a manuscript. There's a version... Uh, for example, that uh, Cyrenaic version in 150 A.D. is a translation from a Greek manuscript that predates it. So that means we can take the entire New Testament back to 150 A.D. in version form. 250 A.D. manuscript. Now, out of the first century, there are some 1,500 letters and documents written by the early Christians. And in these 1,500 letters and documents coming from the first century, you can reproduce the entirety of the New Testament. In fact, a lawyer by the name of Simon Grainley in his day was able to reproduce everything he said but about seven or eight verses. The, these letters go all the way back in to the first century. So I'm saying that from letters that go into the first century that you can totally reproduce the New Testament. In other words, you could, you, could, you could destroy all the manuscripts, destroy all the versions, and you could reproduce the New Testament from these documents that go into the first century. How do they date documents? All right, you can, the documents themselves are, in other words, that so far as these that come out of the first century, they have been passed on down. In other words, we can historically trace them. You can also date them with the various carbon dating. For example, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the carbon dating method would put them a century to two centuries before Christ. In the same way, there are several ways we date them. One is just the fact that you, the, the historical record 
that talks about them, you know, begins at the time that we have them. In other words, about the various manuscripts. At different times in man's history, he's wrote on different materials. He's used different types of ink. He's wrote in different ways. Languages are living. Uh, just like the English language is living, that's why we will always have to have new translations of the English Bible. All of this becomes a factor in dating a particular version, for example. And then the manuscript, you've got a direct quote. Even the way they wrote the material down, whether they used all capital letters uh, or used the small letters, that all of these things tie into the custom of that particular time. And so, suffice it to say that you, when we make these statements, you're making statements that are unchallenged. In other words, that the evidence is there. Nobody will challenge that you can, uh, about what I've said about the manuscripts, nobody's going to challenge what we've said about the version. It's, it's there, on the, on the evidence, from an evidence standpoint. And we're talking about the actual manuscripts and the actual versions that we have, and then the letters themselves. And by the way, these manuscripts and versions and letters are in various museums in the United States, United States, Great Britain, and other places in the world. Okay? Now, from the letters, here's what you do. From these letters coming out of the first century, you can show that the New Testament was completed in the first century. So conclusively that today there is no scholarship that I know of, but that they will acknowledge that the New Testament was completed in the first century. Now, to show you the importance of this, the Tubigen School in Europe in the past century had the theory that the Gospels evolved and was not put down in written form until the second, second century. Well, the discoveries in archaeology have just totally blown that. There's nobody who believes that anymore. But they were effective in influencing literally thousands of minds. Now, there's other ways that could have been dealt with. But suffice it to say, that was a theory that was put forth that a number of people bought into, and it's been completely exploded. Now, when you say that the New Testament was completed in the first century, and it was published at a time when people were alive and involved in those events, you can state that as a fact. In other words, that's not in the theory category. It's, it, it is a literal, hardcore fact that can be demonstrated and proved. All right, now, the question now is, has it been accurately transmitted down? And do you have exactly what Paul wrote? All right, now let me just a, a very brief statement on how the textual printing works. Let's take a the manuscripts. We'll, we'll deal with our four best manuscripts. You know, or we could take, we could throw in ten or what. We'll just deal with our four top manuscripts. Whenever you lay these manuscripts side by side, that's the direct word-by-word -word copy of the Greek, they come out seven-eighths perfect. What I mean by that is seven out of every eight words perfectly coincides with seven out of eight words on the others. Okay? And you're talking about a plurality of manuscripts. Now, remember earlier I made the statement that, uh, about the professor that said there were over 200,000 errors in the manuscripts that we translate our Bible from? What the guy did not go ahead and tell that class is that there is no manuscript with 200,000 errors in it. But he's talking about all of these thousands of manuscripts that there's 200,000 plus errors over those thousands. Well, you can see that here is a copyist who copies, and let's say he, he leaves off an E, or when you're copying, you're going to every now and then miss a word. 
uh, you know, you're going to skip, that would be one of the most common mistakes a copyist would make, would be just simply to drop a word. Well, then whoever copies him is going to make that same mistake, obviously, because he made it. And so you might have several hundred mistakes that are a result of this copyist making a few mistakes like that, and then it was just copied and repeated on down. There's no manuscript that's got any 200,000 mistakes in it. We're talking about all the mistakes in, in all of the manuscripts. All right, now, when we take our top manuscripts and lay them down, they're 7 eighths perfect. Well, you can already see that, that, uh, that if you've got a plurality of manuscripts, that everybody's not going to make the mistake in the same place. So you can see how you can piece this together. From 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths of the material, the only mistake is the same kind of mistake that you would make if you was copying something. If you were copying something, uh, word for word, there would be times when you would leave off the last letter in the word. There would be times when somebody couldn't tell whether you had an I or an E or it was an L or a T where you forgot to cross it. Uh, there would be other little statements, like little things like that within the word itself. Well, from, from 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths, that's what they're calling a mistake, is that kind of thing. The next most common mistake that you would make is that you would leave out a word. In other words, when you uh, uh, translate, here you are translating from the Bible, you probably would not, if you were a scribe and you're copying Paul's letter, you would not write, suddenly the fingers of a you look at that and you say, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, comma. Suddenly the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall, comma. What do you think is going to happen after you copy that entire book? I guarantee you that there's going to be a few places where you leave out a word. You haven't done anything intentionally wrong. And in leaving out that word, you really didn't affect the sense or the meaning or anything like that. Newspapers, book publishers, and everybody would do that all the time. Sometimes you write a letter and you go back and re-read it and find that some word you thought was in there is not. So that was a mistake. All right, sometimes you would substitute a word for another word. In other words, to give you an example how this would happen, sometimes I have a little bit, I, I read from the New International Version. And the other day, we was, I was doing a lesson on Isaiah 53. And I read that, and several times I read in another word other than the one that was there. Well, the reason that happens is that years back, when I first started preaching, I used the, the American Standard 1901 version, and I did a lot of memorizing from that version. And so when I memorized Isaiah 53, it was from the American Standard version. And it's just fixed there so that I can actually be reading the NIV, and I'll say the words that are in my memory. And so verses that I had memorized will have a tendency to come out that way, even if I'm looking at a, at a particular a, state, a particular statement here, you wouldn't have that problem because I'd say that none of you have read the 1901 uh, version or memorized anything from it. And so in the same way, this scribe, you know, that there would be times when he would put in a synonym, okay? All right, I'm saying that from, from uh, 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths, that's the only kind of mistake that's made. Well, you can, all, you can see there that you're not going to have the same mistake that's made by plurality of scribes. So I'm saying a textual critic has no problem getting this from 7 eighths to 15 sixteenths perfect because he has no problem correcting that kind of thing. 
as he looks at a plurality of manuscripts, this guy didn't dot his T, but this guy did. This guy left out the word, but these five over here all put it in. So he don't have any problem with that. Okay? Then, from 15 sixteenths up to 999 out of every thousandth, the kind of mistake that you might have is uh, uh, maybe a, a, a short note of a scribe over the column that got worked into the manuscript itself, or a different spelling of the word, or the using of a couple of words in a different way, or the rearrangement of the order. Well, again, when, when a scholar looks at that, and he's looking at a plurality of manuscripts, he has no problem whatsoever straightening that out. In other words, it'd be just like, say, all of us copied a particular source. I left out a few words and uh, left out a few E's or T's or whatnot, substituted a wrong word, but are, what about the rest of you? Are you, you think you're going to leave out a few words too, but you think that all of y'all are going to leave out the same word I leave out or substitute the same word that I do? You're not. And so they, wherever I left out a word, nine other people will have it. And wherever I substituted, others will not. So I'm saying that a, a, a textual critic has no problem. He takes this plurality of manuscripts, and he has no problem with that. Westcott and Hort, who prepared the text for the American Standard Version, 1901, made this observation, that by the time the textual critic finishes with his work, that you can be absolutely positive of 999 out of every thousand words. All of the debate about the text of the Bible revolves around one word in a thousand. That translates into one half of one percent. One half of one percent. And so it's like we used to talk years back when I was uh, in graduate school at uh, Alabama Christian School of Religion. We had a course where we were studying some of these points in textual criticism. And we used to joke among ourselves that if somebody was to walk in off the street and hear us arguing and debating, does this say this or does this belong there? They would think, well, man, how in the world can you know what you're doing in the Bible, you know, that if you can't be any more certain than that. But what they would not realize is that we were arguing about that one half of one percent. We're not arguing about all the subtle material. And when you read books on textual criticism and they debate about, should, does this verse belong in the Bible? For example, you read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in the King James text, and the Ethiopian eunuch confessed his belief in Jesus before he was baptized. That's in Acts 8.37. If you read it in the NIV or the New American Standard, that confession won't be there. Because they say that that confession was put down in a later manuscript and was not in the original. Okay? That is part of that one half of one percent. Whether it's there or it's not there, it, it doesn't affect the sense whatsoever. Matthew, the 16th chapter, the last verses where it says, Like he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and going on down to the latter part, the earliest manuscripts do not contain those last eight verses in, in Mark. Now, the interesting thing is versions that go back before the manuscripts do contain it, contain it. So scholars debate those last eight verses. Did Mark actually write that? Or did somebody else add it to because it was stated? Did somebody, did another scribe add it? Or did Mark intend for it? Well, there's a debate there, but the point is, there is nothing in those last eight verses that's not in other parts of the New Testament. So there's no point of doctrine that's even under consideration. 
and yet, but yet that's that debatable part. So what I'm saying is, the, the textual critic will tell you, number one, you can prove that the New Testament was written in the first century and was published at a time when the people were alive that were involved in the events. Number two, that the text itself is accurate to the tune of 999 out of every thousand words, and that one half of one percent that we debate about there is absolutely no doctrine that's really involved or affected whatsoever in the New Testament. In other words, for all practical reasons, you can just simply pick it up and, and know that you're reading what Paul wrote, you know, at that particular time. Okay, now, to show you how important that is, published at the same time and all, when, Paul, when you read Corinthians, you read about miracles, don't you? Uh, so-and-so has the gift of healing, so-and-so the gift of this, and you get all these gifts. And then Paul said that all the miracles and apostles were wrought in your midst. Well, you just read those statements, and you were not there. But do you see how important it becomes to you that if you can show that, yes, that was written to the Corinthians about 55 A.D., and those people were alive that were converted by Paul, and they received that letter as a work of an apostle, and they never challenged it. Nobody ever rose up and said, hey, that's a lie. What, Paul, what is Paul talking about? There's no miracles taking place here. Paul didn't do any miracles among us. And then Paul writes a year later, 2 Corinthians, and people have actually repented and responded to 1 Corinthians. Well, see, that's very important. And the same with the four Gospels. If you can show that they were written and published, well, see, you've got Jews that are fighting Christianity. You're looking for the Jews to rise up and say, hey, that's nonsense. He never performed any miracles. But that's not what happens. The Jewish writers speak up and say, hey, he what do they say in the Bible? In the New Testament, they attribute his miracle to sorcery, the work of the devil. The Jewish scholars that write out of that century do the same thing. They believe that he was a worker of sorcery. But what are they saying to you? They're saying he worked things that the populace believed were miracles and were so convinced they believed in him. They don't deny that he did that. And they say that in their own writings. Uh, when you read about the death, burial, and resurrection, the death, the burial, and the empty tomb are facts. Nobody denies them. Or if they do, they do it out of sheer ignorance. I mean, those are historical facts. The death, the burial, and the empty tomb. The argument is how the tomb became empty. Now that's where the argument is, not that it was empty. Well, then when you look at that, the death, the burial, and the, and the empty tomb, and you begin to evaluate it, then a lot of things become important to you. Uh, what about these people that claim to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection? Well, if you can show that they <coughs> preached that at the expense of their own safety, that they were beaten, that they were persecuted, that they went to jail, and they went to their death, what does that show? It doesn't prove they're telling the truth, but it proves that they believed it was the truth so strongly they went to their death. So they were, they were not lying. That's why that there is no unbelieving scholar today that will say the apostles sat down and, and willfully lied about anything. People who go to their death, this Muslim over here that's doing some things that you and I differ with, man, I don't question his sincerity. Those people are willing to stand up and die for what they believe. They may be wrong, but they're sincere. So, from a historical standpoint, you can nail down death, burial, and empty tomb. But then also, from a historical standpoint, you can nail down the fact that these people went to their death in proclamation of that. So then the only question becomes, were they deceived? Well, then you look at the statements they made, 
And they say, we saw him, we touched him, we heard him. Uh, Paul says that, that I didn't even confer with another apostle for three years. Then it was 14 years before I met any of the other apostles. In other words, the statements are so concrete that they're either lying or telling the truth. But yet we've already acknowledged the sincerity of them. And so I'm saying that you can work out a case for history where you can deal with this and deal with it in a factual way.